Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast is a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Concerning Him seeks to enrich Christians around the globe by educating and equipping them through various media. For more information about Emmaus, please visit Emmaus.edu. Hello and welcome to another episode of Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast. Today we are blessed to be joined by Alex Strauch. How are you doing today, Alex? Eric, thank you so much. Good here to be here at Emmaus. I love your theme, Concerning Him. Concerning Him. Is that not the Christian life? Amen. Christ is the center of everything. Focus on Christ. Amen. Well, we are thankful to have you on today. Uh, I just wanted to have you on and, and, and talk about you. I'm sure that should be easy enough. Uh, I, I want to start by you just telling our listeners about yourself, your life story, uh, your training, how you came to know the Lord, how, you, how you've grown in the Lord. I, I want to hear all about it. Well, I was uh, raised in uh, Newark, New Jersey, in Island, New Jersey. I was not raised in a Christian home. And um, when I was about 11 years of age, I was invited by a friend to a Bible camp to go fishing. And um, little did I know, they were fishing for me. (laughs) And it was the very first time I heard the gospel that Christ died for me. And I had no problem with that message. I responded just immediately knowing I needed to be a born-again Christian. I remember when my uh, mother and father came to pick me up, and uh, I I got in the back of the car, my brother was in the back of the car, and I leaned right over the front seat and said to my dad and mom, I said, Dad, Mom, I just got saved. And my dad goes, what, were you drowning? (laughs) Well, that was our relationship (laughs) for most of my life. Made a joke of it all. But I was saved. And it wasn't until really three years later that a man came to my house every Friday night. By that time, my brother had become a Christian. Several of our good friends went to the camp and were born again. But every Friday night for probably the next three years, he would come to my house and we'd have the Island Bible Club. We had a number of young people saved through it, but we started to grow, which shows you the importance of discipleship. Someone spending time with you to explain the Bible, help us in scripture memory, sing songs. He would take us to conferences. So although I was really born again, I was not growing till that time when uh, a brother, Bill Van Blarkham, who was a single man, uh, gave myself and all my friends in Island a, a really a great deal of attention. So anyway, um, I... Um, did go to Emmaus Bible College for three years. I, I graduated from Colorado Christian University, went on to seminary. Not that I planned that, uh, but the seminary was right near our church. Our church was a growing assembly. Uh, I met my wife there, and we got married, and everything just pointed to staying in Littleton, Colorado. It wasn't anything I had planned. <laughs> in fact, I was actually heading for Beirut, Lebanon, in the summer of 1968, I had been accepted in the Hagazian College. I wanted to be a missionary to the Muslim world. Uh, Operation Mobilization was opening a home there. I wanted to work in literature ministry. All of this was right on target until I got a letter from the United States Army saying how much they appreciated me and so much that they were going to draft me in three months <laughs> oh, no. wow. to go to the wonderful country of Vietnam. Now, my brother was already there. 
Okay. So through a long series of events, I wound up in Colorado for three months. And that's now been 53 years. <laughs> so um, I didn't never make it back to uh, Lebanon. So my mission's interest has been carried out through our local church. We have a very um, uh, important uh, missions uh, ministry with uh, lots of missionaries, and we're very serious about world missions. What did you study in seminary? I studied New Testament. Okay. Yes. Okay. Just the basics. I wanted <clears throat> Hebrew, Greek, Bible exegesis. Okay. Yes. And your your church, Littleton Bible Chapel, is that correct? Yes. In, in Littleton, Colorado? Yes. Yeah, and, and you guys have, have done, there's lots of stories about that chapel. Oh, boy. <laughs> They're all good. At least the ones I've heard are all oh, good. good. Any bad stories are not true. <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, you have spent much of your life talking and writing and preaching about eldership. Yes. Why? Why is this so important? Why is this, has this been so important to you? Well, undoubtedly, it's a, it's a ministry God has given me. Um, back in the very early 70s, I started to see the absolute and total confusion over this subject. Everything from an elder is a person who hands out the bulletin at the front door mm. to being a priest. So I was given a series of talks at our church on the church, ecclesiology. And I was starting to look for some material on eldership because our church believed in it and practiced it very faithfully. I could hardly find anything. Mm. What I did find was simply from a denominational background. So right from the very beginning, I decided it, I would make it a Bible exposition. And that's been the secret to the book. It's done over 250,000 copies. It's in uh, 20 some languages. In fact, all our books are in over 45 languages. We have a dear brother in our assembly who is a retired engineer and he takes care of this very big ministry of contracts and uh, foreign publications, it's a lot of work. I think the success to the book was that faithful Bible people would see this man is dealing seriously with the text of Scripture. So literally, I go through every single text, and I draw all my conclusions from the text. I do not put my own philosophy or our own church traditions in the book at all. So really, it's a, a biblical theology of eldership. Mm -hmm. And when you go through some of these key passages like Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5, Acts 14, 23, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, you will see that this is a predominant subject and it's very clearly laid out, the elders are to shepherd the church. Mm. So why this confusion when the Bible isn't confused? Well, church tradition comes in, very difficult to change church tradition, no matter what the tradition is. We had Dave Anderson on the podcast in the fall, close friend of yours. Yes. And, and we had a whole podcast devoted to what he called pastoral eldership. Yes. And I, I really enjoy that. And do you want to just maybe explain what, what does that look like? What, what are the responsibilities of, a, of an elder who's pastoral? Well, if you were to ask the average person on the street or in any church, uh, what is an elder or what is the church eldership? 99% will tell you, well, they're the laymen of the church, they're the advisory board, policy makers, 
administrators, they assist the pastor. A biblical eldership is a pastoral eldership because the only thing we know from the New Testament is that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, give the pastoral oversight of the church, not to any one person, but to the elders. So I call them pastor elders or shepherd elders. Okay. Because that's what the Bible says. And I guess if you have never experienced this, it's very hard to understand because we're also used of the clergy laity division. Mm. We're used to one man who's in charge of the church and to hear of a plurality of elders. Now, I need to explain that. Plurality of elders in the biblical sense means parity. In other words, there is equality among all the elders. All the elders have been charged the pastor of the church. But there's also functional diversity. And that's what you have in 1 Timothy 5, 17, and 18. Um, among the elders, those who lead well, and especially, above all, particularly those who labor, keyword, in teaching and preaching, they are receive financial remuneration. So many people simply don't even understand it. What I have tried to do is take people and through the scripture text and let the text tell them. With talking about a plurality of elders, mm -hmm. how do you understand or how does it, does it work? I should ask, how does it work to have a, a church, an assembly function with, with a plurality of elders, but with one elder who is being paid to do the majority of the preaching and teaching you talked about giving payments to elders who do that. Um, you know, a, a full-time elder, uh, what a lot of churches would look at and say, that's your pastor. How do you understand that? Yes, well, of course, this can be abused either way. It can be abused by making one person the Protestant priest. Only he can administer the Lord's Supper. Only he can bless. Only he can preach and teach. And he gets the title of reverend. And so that is a abuse of 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And the other elders are simply the laymen. They serve for three years or maybe six years. That is not a biblical eldership. The other abuse, the other extreme, is a complete flatline equality, uh, which ignores the fact that some elders are far more knowledgeable in the scripture. Some are spirit gifted at teaching, all should be able to teach, but some, or one, depends on each group, is spirit gifted, Holy Spirit gifted to teach. And there's the gift of guidance, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Um, there's the gift of leadership, mm -hmm. Romans 12, 8. Those who lead, do it with zeal. Each elder will come with his particular gift and contribution to the eldership. But it's obvious, some elders have served long, some have served a couple months. Uh, some may have had formal education, some have not. There's an equality, but there's also a, what I call a diversity mm -hmm. of functions. You have to have both to understand a biblical eldership. You, I wanna ask you another question related. You, you mentioned 
confusion with the clergy laity distinction. And yes. you mentioned uh, some people treat the, the, the pastor as the only person who can, for example, uh, give out communion. Um, how do you understand the role of, of teaching and preaching, the role of, of administrating the elements in, in communion as being done by people who are not elders? Is that, is that, should that happen or should only, should only the elders preach and teach? Should only the elders be in charge of communion? You know what I'm saying? Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. And what I would say to you is there is an enormous amount of flexibility in these areas. Okay. The Bible doesn't tell us meet at nine o'clock Sunday morning or meet (laughs) in a building. They met in homes. Uh, There is a great deal of flexibility uh, for a church to be what it needs to be in its time and place. So there are several things to consider. One is the size of the church. If you have 40 people meeting at home, you're going to be different than a church of 1,000 meeting in a large building. You, uh, the location of a church, are you in a rural area, a city, an urban area? That will make a difference. What giftedness has God given the eldership? Every eldership is different. Some may have four or five very gifted uh, men. Some might just have one or two. Some might not be very gifted at all. So every eldership is different. The, the, the Bible is the, the genius of Scripture is that it can fit in any culture, time, and place, mm. not ignoring, of course, the biblical <clears throat> principles. Now, about clergy and laity, something as fundamentally necessary to the church as clergy ladies should at least be in the New Testament, I would think. There's not a word of this. It's a people's movement. Each believer is gifted of God. So there's a lot of flexibility, and I don't think at all the Scripture teaches that you have to be an elder to administer the Lord's Supper or preach. So... Let's not rob ourselves of the liberties of Christ and start making the problem in many churches. You make rules and regulations and you make them equal with the Bible. So um, I'm redoing the book, Biblical Eldership. It's 30 years old, needs to be brought up to date. A lot of these questions I'm answering in this uh, new edition of Biblical Eldership. One of the things you have to realize is a lot of things we do are simply our way of doing it. Mm. It's neither biblical or unbiblical. It's our way of doing it. And uh, we should let the scriptures guide us. And where the scripture doesn't guide us, it's freedom for the church to be what it should be in any culture, time, or place. What are you, what are you updating in the book? Well, I'm updating the exegesis, hopefully making it much better. A lot of new commentaries and resources have come out since I wrote it 30 years ago. I want to bring that into the book. I think I'm doing a, a better job at more practical things and clarifying some of these issues that come up again and again, like 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Many people, it's hard to grasp that you can have a team of pastors, multiple elders, multiple shepherds, and at the same time have some who devote themselves fully to preaching, and teaching, or just leading. So just not only that, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, those who lead well are worthy of double honor, but particularly those who labor. And again, the key words labor. Not every elder wants to labor in preaching and teaching, which means hours of study, much preparation, 
giving yourself totally to uh, the ministry of the word. So there is this functional diversity and in no way should that demean the other elders. And together they provide a very good leadership body. Mm -hmm. Biblical eldership focuses a lot on how the Bible lays out how eldership should look like, how it works. But you recently wrote a book uh, on Acts chapter 20 on, on Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And we, we just had a conference here at Emmaus on that. And I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit. Why, why did you see a need to write that book? This is an amazing thing. This is Paul's final marching orders to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. It's all the way from verse 17 to 38. It's a big portion of scripture. There's no other portion of scripture like this. It's unique. The great apostle to the Gentile world, speaking directly to the elders of the church, telling them what he did and what he wants them to do. Mm. You would think there'd be 10 books on this. What shocked me, and for years I've been preparing to do this, <clears throat> The only books on this passage are written in a very scholarly way, which almost no one would read. They're not even easy to find these books. I wanted a book that any elder could read with lots of practical application of the text. This passage is so important to the local church and to understanding Christian leadership. Why don't we have five, ten books on this? It's really a, a neglect. So I've been wanting to do this for a number of years. Uh, it took me three years to do it. I, I'm not done with a book till I'm done. I don't like say I have to do this book in a year. I'm done when I'm done. Hmm. And I feel I've covered everything. So I think it's a very important book. Acts 20, Paul's um, uh, fierce, uh, guard the church, fierce wolves are coming. Paul's final words to the Ephesian elders. Now, I just say this to you, Eric. It is so packed full of divine counsel from the Lord. Even this book doesn't cover it all. I mm. could do another whole book on this passage, but I didn't want to uh, uh, discourage my readers with a double-sized <laughs> book. Could you quickly give us some highlights from the book? Yes. From the chapter? Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, one of the major themes is my example. Look at my example. Mm. Remember how I labored among you, how I did things. So one of the major themes is imitate me. I'm imitating Christ. And Paul's great goal was for people to imitate Christ. But he says, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. Mm. So he was a model for what a Christian leader should be. Another very important uh, a verse in there is Paul's complete and total dedication to the gospel, verse 24, where he says, I do not consider my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What a verse of complete dedication to the gospel ministry. It's a marvelous verse of dedication. Everyone should know that. But then in verse um, 28, we have the first exhortation. What's interesting is the first thing Paul says when he exhorts them and challenges them, 
is pay strict attention to yourselves. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. They're supposed to shepherd the sheep, but he says, guard yourselves. Because if they can't guard themselves, they can't guard the flock. And the devil has a special eye on the shepherds because he knows strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. That's very interesting because when our elders are stagnating spiritually, the church stagnates. If they're on fire for the Lord, growing, learning, expanding, then the church will expand and grow. Well, and haven't we seen that recently? I think of <clears throat> there's been multiple big named celebrity pastors, if you will, who have had a fall from grace. Mm. And you see all sorts of testimonials of, of people questioning, doubting, walking away from their faith as a result of the sin of a particular leader. Yeah. Um, well, that's why Paul says he knows that the, the, the devil has an eye on them first. Yeah. And they must guard their walk with Christ, their doctrine, what they read, what they look at, because as the shepherds go, so go the sheep. And then he says to them, it's very, very important, then he says, guard the flock. Mm. And he gives them several reasons. Well, the Holy Spirit placed you as overseers to shepherd. By the way, there's the key term there. Elders are overseers by the Holy Spirit for the express purpose, purpose infinitive, pastor of the church of God. There it is right there. Peter says the exact same thing, but then comes the warning, wolves are coming. Mm. And they're even going to come from within your own church and maybe your, your own eldership. Now that is an apostolic prophetic warning <clears throat> of the greatest consequence. In fact, you can explain all of church history. Mm. Didn't guard the flock, let the wolves in. Hey, come on in. So it is a very important passage. Wow. You might want to buy the book. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. I've read it. Oh, you have? I have, yes, sir. No wonder I love you. <laughs> I knew there was a reason for that. There's a lot There's a lot of questions I could ask you about that. Maybe that'd be another time to have you on the podcast. Sure. We could dive into that deeply. Um, I, I want to kind of close last couple minutes talking about younger people um, when it comes to eldership. Thinking specifically, what I have a couple questions, but the first would maybe be, what advice would you give to a young man who would one day like to be an elder? Okay. Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before those old days come and death comes, which comes very quickly, remember your creator. Have a Youth is a special time to connect with your creator and to follow and devote yourself to him. We are finding today that the pressures of secular society are so powerful that we have this, what I call a secular tsunami, just washing over our churches, drowning many of our young people in secular thinking. Even when they read the Bible, they read it through the movies they see, the stars of Hollywood, their university, the advertising, the air they breathe. 
we must guard our youth, and we must challenge them when they're young to Romans 12.1. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Have God's will, God's mind. So we really do have to challenge young men and women for the future, or we're not going to have a future. Many of them are so secularized already that they can hardly understand the teachings of the New Testament. It seems so far. The Bible's a foreign book to them. Well, we're in trouble, mm-hmm. serious trouble. So youth programs, teaching our young, our, our youth, our children, we got to start real young, catechizing them with the truths of God, warning them about the darkness of our modern Western society and its godlessness and hatred for the word of the Lord. We need to warn them and be by them and train them and give them extra attention. This is a very serious matter in my mind. Mm. We're not gonna have a future. The young people are our future. Of course, I'm pretty young myself, but I mean the really (laughs) young ones, uh, we've got to be speaking to them. That's why camps are so important. Sunday school, uh, youth groups, very, very important. Mm. That's good to hear. And parenting. Parents are on the first line of education. They need to teach their children and not be silent. Just say, let the church do it. Well, they're the first teachers. Fathers, discipline your children. Instruct them in the fear of the Lord. So fathers can fail in this, and they'll pay a heavy price. Mm. I'm... Finally, I'm curious for churches who are who are looking for more elders. Mm-hmm. How young is too young to be an elder? How how do you approach that topic? Well, um, Bible doesn't give an age, mm-hmm. and if you're in certain parts of the world, the oldest person might be 35 in the <clears throat> church. Uh, it doesn't give an age uh, because of the wisdom that the church is a universal movement. Every country, every tongue every people group. So there is a lot of this freedom. Um, To qualify for an elder, we're told you cannot be a novice, you cannot be a new convert. Mm -hmm. So there's a direct statement. It takes some years, and every person's different. Some people are mature by 30 or even 25, and some people aren't mature to 45. Some people are very well versed in scripture, an ability to lead in their mid-20s. So I don't want to give an age, but I would say this. You can't be a new convert and an elder because the devil will uh, tempt you to pride and you'll fall. You also must be able to instruct in sound doctrine and refute gainsayers or the false teacher. Well, that takes time and effort to know the Bible well enough to instruct in it. So that's going to take some years, Mm -hmm. four or five years. But remember, if you're raised in the church, you've been brought up in the church, you have good Christian parents, you may already have two decades of listening to sermons, your parents teaching you, you should be coming with some knowledge there. And then if you make some effort, you go to Bible studies, you read some books, maybe you go to Mayus Bible College for a year or two, um, you could pass that qualification Mm. that you are able to instruct believers in sound doctrine and you can spot false teachers and stop them. 
Now, how long that is with everyone? Again, I just want to tell you, I've seen in my own experience, some men mature very quickly, have had quite a few years of instruction and in, in doctrine. So we just have to uh, be flexible. And sometimes uh, the whole church is real young. You have to go with what God provides you. Some people get thrown in the pool pretty early. Swim. As a follow-up question to that, how do you approach uh, in, in qualifications for elderships, eldership uh, commandments about uh, wife and family and children? Mm-hmm. Or is an elder required to have to be married? Is an elder required to have children? No. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Paul uh, encourages singleness for pure devotion to the Lord. He should at least there warn them, but if you're single, you can't be an elder or deacon, mm. which is what someone who is devoting themselves fully to the Lord may want to do. Also, the actual statement in 1 Timothy 3 does not say must be married. He says, assuming the person's married, of a certain type, mm. a of a one-woman man type. So he's talking about character and a man who is married that he's faithful to his wife. Okay. And it comes under the general overarching qualification above reproach. Mm-hmm. In his marriage, he's above reproach. So a man does not have to be married or have children. But most men are married and have children. Mm-hmm. They must be this kind of man. Okay. Yeah. I think that's very helpful. Yes. Thank By you. the way, yes. you can read that in Biblical yeah. <laughs> Eldership, and I have an entire paper online that explains, I go through the four or five different views of the husband of one wife. Is that on Biblical Eldership Resources? Uh, yes, you can okay. get it under Biblical Eldership Resources. Okay. Yes. So people should check out your book, Biblical Eldership. The new revised copy is happening. Do you know when that will be published? Probably this time next year. Oh, perfect. Yes. Um Check out Biblical Eldership Resources. Your, online. Your, online. Your book on Acts 20. Mm-hmm. You have lots of other good books, too. Uh, by men the, and, by men the and way, Women, Equal Yet Different. That was a very, very good book in complementarianism. By the way, uh, we have on Biblical Eldership Resources, School of the Shepherds. It's an mm. entire online program that is being used literally all over the world to train elders. Yeah, There's nothing else like it out there. And then also, you guys have been doing a, a biblical eldership podcast. Is that correct? Yes. That's Dave that asks you questions. And yes. yeah, that's been very good. Well, check out all of those resources, please. Thank you so much for coming on, Alex. We really appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast. Ministries like Concerning Him are possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.